Please stand if you're able for a reading from God's holy word. Today's scripture reading is from Romans 12, 1 through 2. Please read both verses with me. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Let's see if I'm on. Breaker, breaker. Can you hear me? All right. Hey, if you are one of those kids that was just mentioned, if you are uh, interested, we've got clipboards up here that have coloring and puzzles and other challenges that go along with the sermon this morning. And we'd love for you to come up and get them and uh, participate with us. While that's happening, I want to uh, add my welcome to others. Good morning. My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace, and I want to uh, extend a particular welcome to you if you're joining us uh, on our live stream. Thanks for being with us this morning in the way that you can. We are about halfway through the season of Lent, which is the Christian season of uh, preparation and anticipation for Easter. And our theme this Lent has been intentional pursuit. We've been exploring and examining a variety of historic practices that Christians have used as spiritual disciplines. Uh, practices for um, stepping into the flow of God's grace in our lives. And... Uh, and, exp and pursuing, experiencing His grace in uh, the lives that we live. And this morning, we're reading from the book of Romans, uh, chapter 12, and talking about worship. And I read uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2 this week, and this is uh, the question that it made me ask myself, and, uh, and what I want to begin by asking you. What is our purpose? What is our purpose? In his most uh, recent uh, stand-up comedy special, I heard comedian Jerry Seinfeld say to a packed auditorium, he stood in front of an uh, auditorium full of people after a career of comedy success, and he said, you know me. You know the things that I've done. You know for a fact that I could be anywhere in the world right now. If you were me, would you be up here hacking out another stand-up set? He says, maybe or maybe not. But then he goes on to say this. He says, I'm thrilled to be here. I love it here. And he's talking about that spot where he does stand-up comedy. He says, this could be my favorite spot in the entire world, right here, right now. 
And I thought, we all long for that, don't we? We, we long to be in that place where you feel like, I was created for this. This is what God made me to do. And maybe for you that's, uh, maybe for you that's in the operating room as a physician, Maybe it's running numbers and figuring out formulas. Maybe it's on the ski slope or in your kitchen behind the mixer with the a, with a oven preheating. Or maybe the idea of doing what you feel like you were created to do causes pain because something has happened. You can't do it anymore. You've been injured or disqualified or your partner is no longer with you. Maybe you just feel lost. Maybe, maybe when somebody uh, talks about doing what they were created to do, you feel like, I've never felt that. I've never been in that place where I, where I thought to myself, I was created for this. I'm still searching for that. I'm still uh, wandering and wondering, what is it that God has created me for? And I think maybe part of the problem is that we get confused when we hear that question. When we hear the question, what is your purpose? We get confused between that question and another question. Confused because our culture puts so much emphasis on what we do, right? So much emphasis on vocation. Uh, we, We emphasize how much you can accomplish and how fast you can do it or how much you get paid for what you do. And so when somebody asks us about our purpose, what is your purpose, we confuse that question with another question, which is, have you found your calling? And a calling has to do with a task or an assignment or a way in which you use the gifts that God has given you in the time that you have on earth. And that's in another, I think that's another important sermon that somebody should preach sometime. But... uh, There's a difference between asking the question, what should I do, and the question, why am I here? uh, And if we get those two questions confused, if we're constantly thinking that the answer to why am I here is, what should I do, then we're destined for disappointment because every task and every assignment, every job, every pastime, every stand-up comedy gig is ultimately going to come to an end. And if we've been looking to that for meaning and purpose, uh, and and we come to that point where we cease to be able to do that thing, we're going to be in big trouble. We're going to be rudderless. And so what is purpose? Oxford Dictionary says that purpose has something to do with the reason for which something was created or or, or for which something exists. So purpose is bigger than calling. Purpose is uh, why am I here rather than what should I do. And so I'll ask it again. What is our purpose? I have this same memory. It's a sweet memory that I have. And I, it's the same memory essentially for each of our three children. And... Uh, it's just after they learn to talk, so they're toddler, they're standing. Usually the memory is that they're standing like at our kitchen counter at the kitchen island, uh, eating cereal with, with milk dribbling down their toddler belly. 
And Olivia would ask them these questions and teach them the answers. And so I have a picture of each of our toddlers being asked, who made you? And that child answering, God. And then she would ask, what else did God make? And they'll say, all things. And then the last question is, why did God make you in all things? And they'd say, for his own glory. That's the toddler version of the first question of our confession. The Westminster Confession asks it this way, what is the chief end of man? Or to put it another way, what's the purpose of humanity? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. You were made for God. You and I were made for worship. And that's what we find in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. What we find there uh, is the teaching that if we understand reality the way that it really is, then worship is the obvious response. Worship that is physical. Worship that is intellectual. Worship that is experiential is what we were made for. And we were made to do it together. Romans, this book of Romans, it's, these sermons are interesting. Daniel and I were talking about how uh, we dive into the middle of a book, right? So the book of Romans in the New Testament, it's a letter. It was written by the Apostle Paul who wrote much of the New Testament. And he wrote it to believers in Rome. That's how it gets its name. Believers that we don't think he had ever met. A church that he hoped to visit. And that may be why Romans is one of the most theological of the epistles in the New Testament. It's less subjective. It, it, it gets, it gets it's higher up in theology and doesn't get bogged down in specifics as much because I don't know, we don't know if Paul knew the specifics of the things that were happening in Rome. But in it, in the book of Romans, in the first 11 chapters, Paul has laid out a gospel view of reality. If you go back and begin and read uh, chapters 1 to 11, you'll find there that Paul teaches that God created the world and that the world that he created was good and he put himself on display for all to see. And yet people, the people he created in his own image, rejected him and they rejected his design and chose rather to follow their own ideas and their own desires. And so God, it says, gave them up to their own desires. He gave us up to the lusts of our hearts. And we used our lives and we used our bodies as we saw fit however we wanted to serve ourselves. And the result was not only the demise and and difficulty and sickness in our own bodies and lives and relationships, but also the destruction and decay of of the creation that God gave us to be caretakers of. Paul describes the world that we live in, and he says in this world, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the good news of Romans is the gospel. This good news is that uh, God shows his love for us in this, that yet we were, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He was 
destroyed by our sin. Jesus took the death that was meant for us, and in his mercy, God offers us life in Jesus. Romans says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. In his mercy, God offers us life in Jesus. That's my really uh, weak one paragraph summation of Romans 1 to 11. Don't trust me, read it. And so in the opening of Romans chapter 12, this is what Paul is talking about when he says, I appeal to you therefore by the mercies of God. He's talking about this whole story about God's mercy and salvation that he's laid out. He said, he's arguing on the basis of that good news. And he says, if it's true that God has reversed the curse, if it's true that Christ has rescued us from destruction, from the destruction that we most certainly deserve, if it's true that God has adopted us as his sons and daughters by faith in Christ, if it's true that there is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, then the obvious response is worship. The obvious response is celebration. We've been set free. All of life from here on out should be a victory party. Richard Foster says, God in his love seeks and he draws and he persuades us to himself through the work of Jesus. And worship is the human response to that divine initiative. God has initiated and our response is to worship him. If this is the way, if this is a true description of reality, then the obvious thing to do is to worship. It's the duh thing to do. The rest of the book of Romans is really about what a life of worship looks like. And we can already see in the two verses that we read together that worship is physical. Worship is intellectual. Worship is experiential and we were meant to worship together. You might put it another way. You could say, God calls us to worship with our bodies, to worship with our minds, to worship with our hearts, and he calls us to do it together. We were meant to worship together. Let's take a look. Worship with your body. A few weeks ago, this is, this is a little bit of a sore spot, Daniel. But a few weeks ago, I took a risk. I was standing behind this podium, and I bared my heart confessing to everyone in the tent and online that I don't, I can't bowl. All right? I was vulnerable. And the very next week, Daniel got up here and boasted that he can bowl a 300. In fact, he says he can boast a perfect game. It was, however, later revealed that he was talking about bowling on Nintendo. He wasn't actually bowling. He wasn't even using his physical body to bowl. Verse 1 in chapter 12 of Romans says two really interesting things about how we use our bodies in worship. First, Paul says this. He says, present your bodies. Another translation says, offer up your body 
as part of your worship. And what's interesting is that these are the same words that Paul has previously used in the book of Romans, specifically in chapter 1 and again in chapter 6, when he talks about what people have done with their bodies. He says that we have presented our bodies in our rebellion against God for use. We've presented our bodies for use in in purity and in lawlessness. Romans is painting a picture that tells us what we know if we think about it, which is uh, what we do with our bodies is a representation of what is valuable to us. We offer up what we do with our bodies, what we do with our hands, what we do with our eyes, what we do with our sexual organs, and most specifically and probably most dangerously, what we do with our tongues displays what is valuable to us. And I think the, the typical response is to say, oh, you're, you're, you're right, Pastor. I, I got to say, stop saying so many of them bad words all the time. And I got to stop watching them movies. And I got to stop hitting my sister when mama's not looking. Because our tendency is to respond to this only in the negative, right? I have to stop doing these things with my body because that's what worship is. That stopping of doing certain things. What I all the things that I know that I need to put to death. But, call, but Paul in this passage calls for us to use our bodies as a living sacrifice. So unlike a sacrificial animal in the Old Testament that is put to death to please God, uh, to, uh, to an, atone for sin, uh, we're being called to serve a God who is already well-pleased And he's well pleased because of the work that Jesus Christ has done for us. His son has saved us. It is finished. And so he's he's calling us to bring to life our bodies. To start offering them for the purposes for which they were created. Offering them in worship and in service to him. What we do with our bodies each day. Certainly what we find to do as a calling or as a vocation. The things that we do with our hands and with our mouths and with our eyes in a day-to-day is our worship. It shows ourselves and the world what it is that is valuable to us. And it is most certainly true also what we do with our bodies together when we gather to worship is significant. I have a young friend, young adult, who was who's been dabbling in Eastern religion and philosophy, various yogis and other things. And uh, he said that his experience in Christian worship seemed so detached from uh, from his body and from his experience of the material world. It was always ethereal was his experience. And that yoga and that meditation was so physical that he felt like it was more appropriate. And I think that there's, a, that there's a seed of truth in that, that we've failed to perform biblical worship if what we're doing is so disconnected from the bodies and the creation that God has given us. We should be presenting our bodies to God in external ways that demonstrate our desire to worship, the internal Uh, things that are happening in our hearts because of the work that Christ has done. Standing, clapping, 
dancing, lifting hands, lifting your head, kneeling, bowing, laying prostrate are all biblical examples of physical worship. Water, bread, wine are all physical things that we do. We commune together and participate together in this thing that's actually an action that we do. And now, I understand that whether you're in your living room clearing out the coffee table or uh, on a parking lot in a tent that lying prostrate is challenging, that there may be adjustments that we need uh, to do. We uh, should not be afraid to use our bodies to worship. There is something very important about physically preparing for worship, preparing to move your body into worship, whether that means uh, by putting clean, you know, washing your body and putting clean clothes on it and then physically transporting it to a place where you will join with others to worship, or dropping what you're doing in the kitchen or in the bedroom and relocating to the living room and saying, this is the place where I'm going to put my body to worship right now and join with other believers. And while we all have different temperaments, some of us are more apt uh, towards uh, physical expression than others. And uh, if you found your way to this service, um, into this Presbyterian church, then maybe your temperament is a little bit more reserved than others. It shouldn't mean uh, that concern for what others think should be the defining factor for how you experiment with worship in a physical setting. We shouldn't let concern about what others think of us keep us from saying, I want to raise my hands. I want to I bow my head. I feel like kneeling. And we most certainly shouldn't create a service uh, that seeks to manipulate or control or define what real devotion and real worship looks like and what it doesn't. It takes practice. And we're being called to practice with our bodies and that's a spiritual discipline. Romans chapter 12 says that Paul, in, in 12, uh, Paul is calling us to worship with our minds. Paul's not suggesting by saying offer your body as a living sacrifice that you should check your brains at the door. In fact, when our Bible says that this is our spiritual worship, Paul says present your bodies as a living sacrifice for this is your uh, spiritual worship. The words that he uses there are actually really challenging to translate. Your Bible might actually have a footnote and give you a different translation there because the, the Greek is difficult. It can also mean your rational service. So your spiritual worship or your rational service. And that translation makes it very clear that uh, the only logical thing to do if the gospel is true is worship. Consider the claims of the gospel with your mind. And if God has truly saved us, then we should worship. In fact, Paul goes on to describe a life of worship as a project that involves your mind as a central part of what you're doing. When he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Both of the verbs, to, be be, to not be conformed and to be transformed, are present tense verbs that have this ongoing sense. This is something that's supposed, that we're supposed to be doing, engaging our minds in worship, and that's supposed to be ongoing. It's part of our experience 
of following Jesus. If sin and rebellion began when we exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped ourselves and our own desires, then the more that we learn about the truth, the more we learn about who God truly is from the Scriptures, the more we understand what He has done for us in Christ and the purpose for which He created us, the more we will recognize our need to worship and the more we should be able to recognize when the things that we do or the things that we are thinking are actually being influenced by a different story that isn't true. That we're being conformed to a narrative that isn't the gospel narrative. We should be able to recognize when we're believing lies or when we're making our primary identity a political identity instead of a gospel identity. Or making our primary identity a ethnic identity instead of a gospel identity. Or our primary identity an, uh, an economic accomplishment instead of who God says that we are. We should be able to start recognizing when, we, when we're believing lies about ourselves. Believing lies about who we are or where our worth comes from. Uh, or believing a, a narrative about how to get ahead that contradicts God's word. We should be able to start to recognize if we're being told something that isn't true about God. That isn't consistent with the word of God. Or being led into questioning his goodness or his power or his mercy. Friends, combating lies and combating despair and combating temptation with the truth of the gospel is part of our worship. And it takes our minds and it takes practice. One of the reasons that we come together every week is to do some variation of practicing uh, using our minds to understand the truth of the gospel. We're called into worship at the beginning of the worship service because we're trying to practice and be reminded that we were made to worship. This is our purpose. We hear words of assurance at the end of our confession each week because uh, we're trying to practice using God's Word to assure ourselves about who we are in Christ, to assure ourselves about what has been done with our sin and our guilt and our shame. Do you know how to use God's word to assure yourself? Do you know how to preach the gospel to yourself? This, is, this, is, this takes your mind. Do you know uh, that God's word is powerful and effective and that if you're feeling tempted to, or if you're, you're feeling like you're slipping into fear or anxiety or starting to feel overwhelmed, uh, that the truth of the gospel in the book of Romans says that you have not inherited a spirit of fear, but a, a spirit of adoption. That you're not what you're tempted to believe, but that you're a son of God. That you're a daughter of God. That you're not an orphan adrift, that you can cry out to God, Abba, Father, because He is a good, good Father. This is the practice of using God's Word and using your mind to worship Him. And to live a life of worship. And how can we use God's word if we don't know God's word? It's an intellectual pursuit, right? One expert estimates that 95% of the choices that we make, the choices we make under stressful situations and pressurized situations, 95% of the choices we make are not premeditated choices. They're just responses based on what we have intentionally nurtured and practiced in our minds. 
We're preparing now to make those choices by what we do with our minds. How are we trading our minds in worship to glorify God? Romans chapter 12 says that we worship with our hearts. We worship with our bodies. We worship with our minds. We worship with our hearts. What does it mean when, it, when Paul says that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect? Some translations there that says testing and discerning or testing and approving. Um, any way you translate it, it's not far off from the words that the psalmist uses in Psalm 34 when he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. It has to do with the difference. Paul is trying to lead us into the difference between an intellectual assent to something and an experiential knowledge of something. There's a difference between believing that God is good and experiencing His goodness in your life. The great 18th century preacher Jonathan Edwards used to talk about the difference between having a rational I think this is my Jonathan Edwards uh, a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. What he's saying is that you can observe honey. You can, you can see that honey is sticky. You can see that it's gooey. You can see that bears and hummingbirds like it and kids love it and it gets stuck all over and hard to get out of their hair. You can see that people use it as a sugar replacement and that bees would die to protect it and you can gather all of that information and conclude that it must be a fact that honey is sweet without ever even tasting it. But you can only know if that's true if you taste and see. If you test and approve. If you put that assumption or that conclusion into action, right? If you get in there with Pooh Bear and stick your paw in the pot and taste some. Worship is experiential. Worship is experiencing that God is good and experiencing that, uh, that doing His will is good. That it gives life. This is the, the second half of that catechism answer, Right? Uh, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Have you tasted God's goodness? Have you tested to see if what the Scripture says is true? Have you tested to see? Uh, have you tested to see if what you have been looking for? in sexual promiscuity can be found if you offered your body up to purity and fidelity? Have you tested to see if the scriptures can really handle your questions and your doubts? Have you, have you examined them and brought your questions? Have you given them the same kind of mental engagement that you've given other texts in your education? Uh, the things that you've used in your preparation for your vocation? Have you considered joining a month, our monthly uh, prayer meeting and seeing, tasting to see if prayer is good and if God answers prayer? Have you considered leaning into participation 
in the church to test and see if you can find the community here that you've been looking for in all of those other places. I make those last couple of suggestions, not because it's my job to promote the church, which it is, but, uh, but because corporate worship is assumed in the passage. Romans, like so many of the other epistles, is written to a corporate worship gathering in Rome, a gathering of believers, a little church. The vast majority of the pronouns in Romans, as in many of the epistles, are plural. What that means is when you read Romans, most of the time when you read the word you, you can almost always assume that it, mean, it means use guys. Y'all. Right? This is us. That collective you. Paul intended, God intended, that we would gather together for worship. That's what we're made for. When Jesus, asked, uh, when, when Jesus was asked, what is the chief end of man? They, they said it a little bit differently. Teacher of the law came to Jesus and he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Worship. And then he said, love your neighbor as yourself. Do it together. This is not a solo project. When we gather, we make this thing real for one another. We, we remind each other. We encourage each other. We spur each other on. We use our bodies and we gather with other people who are using our bodies. We say, sing with me. We use our minds. We say, consider this teaching. We share this experience in a moment. We're going to invite one another to eat bread and drink wine, and commune together. According to Richard Foster, one reason corporate worship should be a spiritual discipline is because it is an ordered way of acting and living that sets, God, sets before us God so that he can transform us. We have uh, been called together to worship with a body that we call the church. We've been called together into God's presence so that we can say uh, to him and so that we can say to one another, you know me. You know what I've done. You know for a fact that I could be anywhere in the world right now and nonetheless, I'm thrilled to be right here. I love it here. This is what I was made to do. This could be my most favorite spot in the entire world. When we gather to worship, it's what we were made to do.